acting like I know something about what I'm going to do here. But the truth is I don't. So, but, I, but, but Mary Grace actually said, I want to talk about the heart. And that's uh, the kind of the fundamentals of, of this uh, uh, adventure this evening. So I call this longing for stillness. The clouds move through our valley, drizzle, then perfect sunshine, balancing the elements. The the sky too big for our smallness. Coming to this place with these simple instructions, the vulnerability of this human intimacy challenged the vulnerability of this human intimacy challenged. This breathing into our own darkness, somehow being alone in our own arrogance. This sitting, allowing the chaos of our world to gently yield, reaching out through the years, finding some grace, some medicine, that shakes the heart and loosens our grasp. Stepping out of a life so long ignored, dipping back into one's uncertainty, forgetting the strength in our own bones, magnifying the prayer of this mysterious groundlessness, softening for some final blow. Having beaten the judger in ourselves a thousand times, only to crack the old selfishness, what seemed like a battle becomes a symphony, holding the simple wild an unfettered heart. Our world opens to this great stillness. So this sitting and allowing this uh, chaos uh, to yield uh, is our practice here. You know, and I was... Uh, kind of reflecting earlier a couple things, you know, I wear red. <laughs> if you haven't noticed, and if you've been to any retreats in all these years, I always wear red. You know, I was thinking, oh, I've never really uh, kind of gone into that. So I'd like to go back about, uh, what, 43 years now. And when I first was, um, this was in Kathmandu, and 69, and, and uh, His Holiness, the 16th Karmapa, came to Kathmandu uh, to do this thing called the Black Hat Ceremony. And at the time, I was wearing a kind of a red Tibetan shirt when I went in to see His Holiness, you know. And um, there was this, oh, and I had this mala on that was uh, uh, actually, uh, anyway, it was made out of bones, human bones. And... uh, and we had this whole exchange, and I, suddenly it was the first time someone 
it felt like, you know, besides a father figure, was suddenly looking at me and actually with this very openness. And I realized, oh, he was actually very open in seeing me in some way. And I felt seen. And I realized how that hadn't happened. You know, and here was someone totally outside of my culture, outside of anything I could imagine, who kind of sat on a high throne and all this stuff. But he was just a human being, you know. And then later, I think probably a year or two later, then I, um, uh, I took robes and, and I had kind of long matted hair and, you know, I went into this monastery and they kind of shaved my head with a straight razor and uh, it was sort of all this little scabs and stuff. It wasn't so well done, <laughs> you know. And I had to, I was wearing these, uh, these, uh, there was essentially orange robes, you know. And, um, and I asked about it, you know, and they said, oh, the, the tradition is that through the centuries uh, there is a plant in India along the Ganges. It's called Geru. And Geru, it depends, you know, they take and they use it as a dye. And the dye goes from anywhere from yellow to maroon, uh, depending on uh, the plant itself. And that it was always, in a sense, that that represented in some way that uh, the mendicants and the sadhus, and that they, uh, in a sense, uh, held that as a uh, vision for how uh, they would, uh, in, in a sense, uh, be seen or inhabited the world. So I always felt like it was somehow also the responsibility of sitting here of inhabiting some piece of that. So that's why, you know, and uh, I wear that, wear this, uh, that color. It's an honoring of kind of a long, long tradition that goes back actually pre-Buddhist, back in the early Vedas. So where I want to go a little bit tonight, a little bit more a little storytelling here, because I realize really what I want to talk about is that ultimately when we come to this practice, you know, they talk about this as a mind training. But uh, what is the purpose of this mind training? Is it just to, you know, have a, a really sharp mind, you know, and be able to concentrate? Is that it? Or is there something else this is actually pointing towards, you know? I had the privilege in India, I traveled with Ram Dass, uh, in his first years, you know, in India and stuff. And, and uh, one of the things I always loved was that expression that, oh, we train the mind to be in the heart. You know? And so fundamentally, it's what we're doing here. Is we're actually training the mind, uh, actually, so that it doesn't, it has its wisdom, but it doesn't disturb uh, the, uh, the, really the, simpleness uh, of uh, a human being. And the human being is very simple. You know, I think sometimes it's, it's as simple as, you know, uh, after years in India, I was thinking about this earlier, that, that um, you know, I always say there's only three things I learned. You know, one of them is I wanted to be loved, I could love, and I wanted to help. You know, 
that was all my years of early years of retreat were uh, simply uh, the truth of it. That's all that was underneath it all. You know, and on Monday, the, uh, uh, Sharon Salzberg was here last week uh, teaching. And I spent six years, I think, about traveling with her and a lot of parallel retreats and stuff. And I was thinking, you know, she wrote this book on loving kindness and has been teaching it for years and years. And I was reflecting back to something in my life uh, that, uh, in a little pivotal point uh, where she was part of that. And, uh, you know, I just want to, in a sense, kind of honor and thank her. And there are two, like, sisters that really uh, showed me something about uh, how this ultimately works. So as story goes, uh, I was in Varanasi in Benares, and uh, I'd done a series of month-long retreats and some solo retreats. And, and um, so at the end of the month-long, uh, I was in a room. Now, it's a little different than this, but it, there was a concrete slab, and there were 20 men lined up, you know. And um, at the end of that retreat, as usual retreats, people just sort of vanish, you know, disappear out into the cosmos and whatever, you know. And uh, in this particular case, uh, the last day I got sick, you know. And we were all, the, the kind of the community of us were all going to Bodh Gaya, where the uh, Buddha was uh, enlightened and where we uh, would spend winters a lot of times. And, and um, so I was there and I was in this, I was in this room, I was sick and I was laying on this, uh, you know, uh, uh, we didn't have those, what are they, these uh, blow-up mats in those days. It was just, you know, like a blanket down and uh, laying on, on a concrete floor. And that's how we lived for years. You know, it was amazingly simple. But also I had one of these bodies that, um, you know, it didn't seem to, I could go through a lot and it just was fine, you know. Whether it was, you know, in, you know weeks in uh, traveling overland, um, you know, uh, through Europe and uh, Turkey and, uh, you know, uh, Iran and Afghanistan and I can't say I was necessarily in my right mind. But there was also, uh, 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 you know, when you're 20, you just, you're not, uh, you're invulnerable. There's nothing's going to happen. You know, you just kind of have this belief that uh, it, uh, it, it just, you know, it's forever. You know? And so, I'm laying in this room and, and, um, and there's something about the end of retreat and everybody leaving and there is this uh, sense of abandonment, you know, that was there. And uh, I hadn't ever really been, I had a terrible temperature. And Sharon stayed a day and came in and, and uh, you know, and, and we were old friends and so we just talked and stuff. And she stayed one day and then she left. But it was kind of a sister of mercy in the sense that I had a thing uh, that's called dengue fever. And it's also known as uh, break bone fever. And so it's very painful. And uh, 
uh, I've had friends that just didn't make it with it. But I was young, strong, and, uh, you know, it seems to uh, do and young and old, or if you get it a second or third time. So I remember laying there, and the only thing I could remember uh, through this was the kindness of Sharon, kind of uh, just, you know, it was just a few words. It wasn't a lot, but she stayed, and then left for Bagaya with... Uh, with others, about five hours train ride from there. And um, as I went through that, I just kind of remembered. And it was terrible, actually, in the sense I, you know, at the age and everything. And I met Sharon when she was 18, so you can uh, see maybe she was 24 then or something right in there. And um, and I thought, oh, well, uh, there is some hope here. And also the struggle. No, and uh, so I, I want to relate a second piece of this, and then I'm going to go back. And second piece was uh, again, you know, the invulnerability, and probably about ten years later or so, uh, I was uh, living in Kathmandu, and, and um, it was summertime, and I remember going. I was uh, working there, and, and um, uh, a boy went out and got a, a cup of tea for us. And uh, it was hot, and it was you know rainy season, and uh, you know there's always a lot of uh, disease around at that time. And so I drank the first cup, and then uh, the person I was uh, getting some materials from uh, sent the boy back out. And the boy went out, and he came back and brought another cup of tea. And so I sat there, and as, as I began to drink it, I realized it was lukewarm. You know. And there was part of me that knew, okay, this was not something to drink. You know, that somehow he had just taken some water and poured it in and kind of filled the cup up. And, you know, that was the polite, polite thing to do. Um, so, I don't know how many days later, uh, I come down with typhoid fever, you know. And they give me, I don't, I've forgotten, and it's some chlorophenicol or something like that, which they've only... They probably last used here in the 50s. And, uh, and, but the wonders of antibiotics, I got through that. And then two weeks later, I got hepatitis. You know, it was a wonderful cup of tea. You know? And um, in this process, I had again, you know, it was, uh, if you know hepatitis, you know, now they have these shots and, you, you know, you can travel and it's not a big deal. But at that time, uh, when you got it, it's a, uh, where there's virus in the liver. And it's very, it's, 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 it's when a lot of darkness, you know, the liver is really based on darkness. So there were heavy dreams and you're very lethargic and you can't move around. And uh, it was really a, a difficult time. And I had, uh, there was um, a Nepali nun, Theravada nun. And she would come to visit me. And one of the beauties of it was that, uh, I don't know how I can say that she was like a light being. You know, there was my darkness I was dealing with and how in some way that I was uh, caught in, you know, and sort of the, the what they call a kind of my own darkness was my own kind of, Kalesis, my own um, 
you know, torment of my own mind in some way. And she would come in and she was literally, uh, there was something light uh, that was about her whole mind and body that uh, also affected me, you know. And as I think back on all this of how we come to this practice, and one of the things we come to, we did not, uh, you know, this, uh, the klesa, the, uh, in a sense, darkness, that uh, the torment of our mind and the kind of our own, uh, uh, you know, we have all these stories that we carry, you know, all these incarnations that you have been through. And one of the principles of sitting and being with yourself is you can't escape yourself, you know. And so we sit and we have these, uh, sometimes, but really they are painful uh, stories, you know. And it's not just, I was just explaining pieces of that, that of the body that took me into darkness, you know. We're great storytellers, you know. And one of the things is I see that underneath all of this is we're afraid. You know, fundamentally we are uh, afraid. We're afraid of each other. We're afraid of the future, you know. Uh, we have some, sometimes even fear of, uh, of incorporating or inhabiting the past in some way. And the practice here is our willingness, in a sense, uh, this uh, vulnerability uh, that uh, a lot of times we've blocked or move away from or, you know, figured out some way to get busy or going faster than. You, know, you can't do that here, you know. You have to sit here. You can, in a sense, kind of bypass it in some ways, but only for so long. And then the whole piece is that whether, uh, you know, you, you have to yield on some level. And if you yield, then you allow whatever is there uh, to come, you know. And somehow, uh, in letting it come, uh, there is uh, you have to step into it in some way. You know, and if you step into it, uh, there is a process here. And the process is, oh, I acknowledge uh, uh, my fear. Uh, sometimes my wanting the things to be different than they are, or my judgment or my criticism, uh, you know, and it's really based on two pieces I always see, and one of them has to do with hope, that somehow it'll be somehow that appeals to me, you know. And the other is, you know, I fear. And you're going to have to just come to some kind of terms of, can I sit in the center of this? You know, and not uh, move in, you know, can you not move into the future? You know, and there's such a habit of mind. You know, and I, I know in the sense of, uh, you know, some of you are really professional planners. You know, and you've really got it down on some level. 
You know, and something about here, even if you're trying, you know. There's nothing you can really do. We're not doing anything here. You know, we sit, we walk, we follow bells. No. Sometimes I think of this as like this, I was thinking this today, as we're in this big river of experience that's happening. You know, it's really broad. And we're these little boats that are you know, have a little um, rudder and we can kind of move a little bit to the left and a little bit to the right. And that's our, that's our power, our single powers. But it's not acknowledging that somehow we're in a much bigger river that's going on here. And this practice is, first of all, to see the limitations of how much control we have with that little rudder that we go a little bit of left, a little bit of right, you know, and we think, oh, that's enough. You know, that'll make, that'll, I'll be happy. This will work, you know. But it's not the practice in a sense. It's first of all studying it and getting to know it. That that's, uh, in a sense, our capacity and our limitation both. And that we're kind of sitting in a room uh, that has been held uh, in this sitting for 2,500 years of people dedicating themselves uh, in some way releasing their smallness uh, into something much, much bigger. You know? And it is mysterious. You know, and it's not something that uh, you can uh, know or control, but uh, you can learn. Uh, You can learn to rest and have some ease in the center of it all. And you don't need to control or know it. In a way, these uh, for me, these talks in some way is a training of, of being able to show up and not know how it works. You know? But it is what all we're doing here. Is we're showing up not knowing how. You know? And I loved uh, kind of Gill's analogy. He gave this analogy that of the, what was it, the hourglass, that somehow... You know, this practice is we have to, uh, we get smaller and smaller, you know. Uh, And it's really how we have to study, in a sense, our own kind of manufacturing of how we make it all up. And it has to get smaller and smaller. And in a sense, we have to go through that hourglass. And then it has the possibility uh, of being different, of seeing differently. Uh, no longer, in a sense, uh, caught. But we have to go through it. You know, you can't kind of escape that in some way.
this is um, from a, about a nine-year-old who goes through a kind of tragic accident. And, um, and it really uh, sort of opens this uh, woman's eyes. And this is, I'll just read what it is because I think it's a good expression of, uh, of how we can do this. There is this thing I've been going around for years, this thing that I must go, quote, through. I have gone to the left of it and the right of it. I've climbed over it and tunneled under it. But unless you go through it, it won't take you where you want to be. You'll end up somewhere else, which is where I find myself once again. This ritual passage through is something that I have feared and sought to avoid for years. And it can be avoided for lifetimes even. But eventually we must all make the journey, quote, through. I realize this now. I feel it even physically. It's time. There will continue to be excuses that I could use to abort this decision. There will always be excuses, especially for the imaginative and rebellious mind. But I am committed now. I know the rewards will be great. I have always known this, just as I've always known that I would make it to this light I seek that lies at the mythical but very real other side. It is not hard, it is not hard not to judge myself harshly for trying so long and laborious to overcome the obstacle by doing everything except going through it. But then again, that spirit that drove me to the hot sands of Crete and the misty streets of Munich and the icy waters of Alaska is the same spirit that brings me to where I am today, which is face to face with the things I have run for for so long. And although I have not yet gone through it, there is a small particle of peace that comes from simply looking it in the eye. It is ever so slightly smaller than I thought. It is definable, not infinite. I cannot deny the feelings of defeat that I have for not having found a clever way around it. There is part of me that feels that if I were just a little smarter, I could have made it. And I still feel like there are crafty people out there who have made it successfully around, even though I know that's probably not true. Nonetheless, I still manage to feel inferior to these fictitious demigods who have beaten the system. I wanted with all my heart to be one of them. But I guess I will just have to simply settle for getting there, even if I do have to trudge through it in a regular old way. You know, and so this is what we're doing, a regular old way that we have to sit and kind of own, you know, uh, sort of stop making up excuses and thinking somehow that we could outthink this or, you know, know some uh, wonderful piece of uh, Buddhist knowledge 
that would somehow uh, free us from it. But ultimately, all I know is that you have to sit. You know, uh, you have to sit and you have to kind of train yourself to come back. That's the work, you know. And coming back is really just simply uh, this capacity to inhabit, uh, inhabit this place, this present, you know. It'd be nice if we had some magical formula here. No. Uh, But all we have is this uh, practice, this simple practice. And this simple practice is actually that we begin to surrender. Uh, Surrender to the moment, to the truth of our, you know, of our wandering off and our remembering and that we come back and uh, there is the, in a sense, kind of, first of all, understanding the struggle and then there's uh, kind of letting that struggle. Uh, It's okay. You know, this... um, this word metta, uh, it's uh, such a, in a way, a fabulous word to me because uh, in our culture, you know, we have words that, uh, you know, recognize the uh, kind of this, sometimes this primal emotion that we call love. You know, and they say that, you know, its near enemy is the fact that there is attachment. And that metta doesn't have attachment. You know, it's not something that attaches to thing. It's something that actually just simply recognize when we've been through this enough that uh, this is enough. You know, and that the human condition is that instead of its separateness or its loneliness or its selfishness, uh, kind of begrudging uh, the complexity of uh, living in some way that it surrenders, you know. And it surrenders not just to, to some dualistic truth about love and all the complexities of the stories that go with that, but that there is a state of being that exists, you know. And that state of being is something about the whole river, you know, the whole breadth of it. And that somehow that that the separateness or the loneliness or the selfishness, all that uh, was a misconception. You know, that ultimately your nature is that uh, you uh, are not separate. You're part of all of this. You know, and uh, certainly there is the relative uh, truth of, you know, I always kind of joke and say, I'm John, I'm a neurotic. You know, I carry all this past and kind of into this present. And, but underneath it, I have the same heart you have. You know, I have the same, in a sense, dreams that we all want to be happy. You know, in essence, the community here, we all want to be free. 
And in some ways, this is really about when we start release the struggle. Uh, they, we begin to feel the that non-separateness or that, you know, sometimes the word interconnectedness uh, that uh, is ultimately available here. So we have this, really this universal love that's, you know, maybe there's nothing we do, but uh, I think in some ways that as we kind of see uh, the nature of our conditioning and uh, begin to uh, release some of the struggle, that that sense of separateness and uh, uh, distance uh, minimizes and we see that, oh, we're actually kind of in love with everything, you know, uh, this is a beautiful place. Uh, from the trees that I was watching today, this this morning when I was walking down to breakfast, this uh, you know kind of awkward. This turkey came flying really high up and landed right over here by the hall. But that turkey, uh, there was an awkwardness, but then a majestic piece of that's a lot of that's a big turkey, you know, and uh, and. He, he was high up and he was coming down at an incredible speed, you know? And, um, you know. But there's something beautiful about uh, the fact that uh, all of this is working, you know? And that somehow there's this human condition that somehow we can control it on some level. And yet, the practice is the fact that there's a kind of self-organizing principle that's been going on all the time, you know. And that in some fashion that we can begin to find out that uh, there is a harmony, there is a way that organizing, you know, that you can actually begin to let it inform you in some way. You know, it's not that you're separate from it, it's something that you have to, in a sense, uh, go through your stuff, uh, see the, and know the struggle, and then, you know, there is uh, this possibility. You know, and it is kind of going through that, um, that narrowing, and uh, in some ways, maybe our only job here is to encourage you to, uh, you know, when it gets narrow and it seems like uh, some old story, some something's holding you, or your body in some way, you know, or your heart, uh, that... that there is encouragement from up here uh, to keep going. You know, there's different aspects of this. uh, 
of uh, open-heartedness. You know, and there are certainly specific practices and all that, but in some way, uh, to see uh, clearly uh, through, um, maybe stepping through the struggle of this in some way, that we can loosen the fabric that holds us. And then uh, that sense of separateness is broken down. And you can begin to see that uh, what Mary was talking about last night, in the sense of that first noble truth, that, you know, it's a complicated place. And the suffering is obvious. And that your suffering, the suffering, uh, there is a response. You know, it's not something you make up, it's something uh, you allow. You know, and they use the word, you know, compassion. That there is some connection with uh, a sense of not separate from the truth of suffering. And then it moves us. In the same way that, you know, it's only one side of a coin. The other side of the coin is that, you know, um, this is a magnificent place. You know, the opportunity to breathe, to uh, allow this body that uh, works on its own, you know, uh, all these systems that function, uh, not with your interference, but actually with your ability to inhabit it in some ways. You know, the breathing, the knowing, and even the uh, brain and its kind of storytelling and its manufacture, and all the kind of biochemical processes that, uh, from your emotions to your thinking, that are you, you're, you're, this is your life force. You know, it's here for a while. And that magnificence is something that uh, you can be inspired by and be touched by, you know. And that when you see it anywhere, I was wondering about the turkey, if that's possible, the turkey flying out of the, up on the hill there, coming down, I wonder, you know. I mean, I was really happy for the turkey, you know. And that somehow... Uh, but that's everywhere, you know, all of you. You know, when we get to sit with you and, you know, sometimes even in your uh, pain and difficulty, you know, there's also this truth of, you know, I'm so happy for you. I don't know anything else that could bring me more joy than you, in a sense, kind of unraveling uh, the complexity uh, of what you think yourself is. You know, if you can do that, I'm thrilled, even if it's difficult. And then in the tradition, they say, you know, okay, there's that kind of sympathetic joy, there's compassion, there's this... Uh, uh, you know, non-differentiated, universal uh, openness, kindness, love. 
that's there. And that it's all held in this, they say, they use the word equanimity. That it's all held with this balance of intelligence. You know, that somehow uh, it's not that, you know, we, um, there's not a sense of discernment or boundaries or the ability to, uh, you know, say no. Uh, Because that intelligence is there. And that we can actually rely on that intelligence in the sense of uh, the strength of our commitment to, you know, these precepts and uh, this way of life. Uh, In some ways I think, oh, oh, to keep those, I don't have to, you know, think this all out. You know, there's this intelligence there that will kind of balance my heart and uh, keep me informed where if I need to go a little bit left or right, it will, it will inform me of that. So I don't have to struggle so much with the thinking part of it or the analyzing, but that there is actually a deeper, something deeper underneath it all that can trust uh, what you're doing here. So I think that's probably okay, you know. So, I'll just read this again. It's the way I kind of organize myself in some way, but maybe it's not. It doesn't have to be organized. It has to just be true. And uh, Longing for stillness. The clouds move through our valley, drizzle, then perfect sunshine, balancing the elements, The sky too big for our own smallness. Coming to this place with these simple instructions. The vulnerability of this human intimacy challenged. This breathing into our own darkness. Somehow being alone in our own arrogance. This sitting allows the chaos of our world, allows the chaos of our world to gently yield. Reaching out through the years, finding some grace, some medicine that shakes the heart and loosens our grasp. Stepping out of a life so long ignored. Dipping back into one's uncertainty. Forgetting the strength of our own bones. Magnifying the prayer of this mysterious groundlessness. Softening for some final blow. Having having beaten the judger in ourselves a thousand times, only to crack the old selfishness, 
what seemed like a battle becomes a symphony. Holding the simple and wild and unfettered heart. Our world open to this great stillness. So thank you for your attention. And I have a question. Are the frogs awake? (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate